You guys can take a seat. Ladies and gentlemen, our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up in 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. All right, for those of you guys who remember the movie The Fugitive, uh, I hate to tell you guys this, but you're old. <laughs> Fugitive, you may not realize this, but it came out in 1993, which means we're coming up on his 25-year anniversary mark, which means, again, that you of those us that know that movie, we are old. For you college students, we don't normally do this to you guys, but it's summer. There's not as many of you. I know that movie came out before some of you were born, all right? But for me, growing up in my prime, that movie highlighted an iconic showdown between two characters, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. For some of you guys that might remember that movie, uh, Harrison Ford played the character Dr. Richard Kimball, who had been framed for the murder of his wife. And so uh, Tommy Lee Jones, as kind of the uh, leader of all the authorities, ends up with a manhunt to hunt him down and to find him. And so Harrison Ford, or Richard Kimball, is on the run as a fugitive who's come under accusation. And he's on the run, he has nowhere to turn, he has no one to turn to, and he's going to, while he's, in a sense, trying to hide out, he's going to, in a sense, be trying to find who actually killed his wife, and he's going to try to solve the mystery and the murder himself, while trying to stay without being caught. I loved that movie. That 30-second clip was, for me, one of the most iconic speeches of the movies for me growing up. I loved that moment. I think for me, as we jump into Psalm 90 this morning, one of my favorite psalms, we're going to find that the nation of Israel has come not just under accusation, like Richard Kimball, but they have actually come under divine sentence. Uh, For those of you who know the nation of Israel's history, can remember back to the Old Testament in Numbers 14, the nation of Israel sins and they rebel against God, and Moses is pleading for the nation of Israel on behalf of the nation, and he comes before God, and God ends up forgiving their sin, but for Moses and for his generation, God is going to discipline them and is going to bring consequences to their sin and they're going to end up having to wander the wilderness for 40 years and they will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. In Psalm 90, to the best that we know, we're not completely sure of the timing or the historical circumstances, but it would seem that Psalm 90 is something that Moses will write to that generation after they've been condemned to wander for 40 years. And what he's going to want the nation of Israel to recognize and what he's going to want us to recognize this morning, that as they wonder, as they come under difficulty, as they come under struggle, frustration, and confusion, what he's going to want that nation to recognize through Psalm 90 is that God is a refuge unlike any other refuge. That for Moses' generation, as they're going to wonder, that God is going to be a refuge that will parallel and, and outcompete with any other source or shelter they could find. In fact, as we jump into Psalm 90 this morning, I want you guys to turn there. And as Psalm 90 opens verse 1, verse 1 is nothing more than a thesis for the whole psalm. We could start there and go home, essentially. But notice what uh, verse 1 says in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses says it very clearly that Psalm 90 verse 1 really is a thesis for the book, for the psalm. That the Lord is a dwelling place for all generations. What Moses is trying to help that generation recognize in the midst of what they're going about to be to do for 40 years as they wander the wilderness is that the Lord is going to be their refuge. 
when they won't get where they want to get, where they won't have safety and shelter and security, that the Lord will be a refuge unlike any other shelter or source they could find or hope for. And really, as we think about searching for refuge, it's really a human experience. I'm having a little bit of a trouble with my click here. I might need you guys in the, in the sound booth to help me a little bit. Uh, but I ran across a, a, a little clip, uh, or not a clip, but an image this week of the kinds of shelters that we have from one generation to the next. The way back when we started with caves and rock shelters and eventually we engineered our way up to a lean-to to provide some shelter from the wind and the heat. But eventually we realized that wasn't enough and so we created the ability to create even greater shelters with a hut where we could get not just wind and sun but also protection from rain by and large. And then we mo- mo- moseyed our way all the way to a stone house, to bungalows, apartments, uh, condominiums. Uh, and then I would argue now in 2017 that we've seemed to regress back into the tiny house. I don't know what the whole phenomenon is, right? But shelter is a human condition. It's a human desire. It's a constant human activity. Uh, shelter from the elements, but sometimes it's also a shelter from threats uh, that hit us. Uh, I was thinking back when I was a kid that we would often have kind of wars with kids. And I remember when I was a little kid, we would take cardboard boxes and we would build forts out of cardboard. But at a certain point, we had the engineering ability to do that, but we got to the physical ability where that was no shelter whatsoever because you could just power right through it. So we got into tree houses and into tree forts and into wooden structures, but then you kind of keep moving into adulthood and we get into missile shields and into IT encryption and, and hacking of systems. There's like hackathons where you just, people show up to hack mainframes and I'm like, that sounds amazing. I'd like to do that, Right. But as we mature, we get better and better and more and more sophisticated as to the shelters and the security systems that we build. Because it's a human condition to be in search of refuge and shelter. Psalm 90 verse 1 in the NAS, it translates it, God has been our dwelling place. Some translations that you may have may translate it hiding place or place of refuge. But what Moses is saying to that generation and to every single one of us is that God is a refuge that it provides shelter from the elements and the threats of life unlike any other shelter that we could possibly seek. Why? Why is that the case? He's going to mount his argument in verses 2 and 6 upon the eternality of God. Uh, In terms of the eternality of God. Notice what he says in verse 2. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's amazing what he's saying here in verse 2. He says, in a sense, that God existed prior to creation. He continues on in verse 3. He says, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. That is, as Moses unpacks the eternality of God, which is why he's a great refuge for all generations, not just Moses's. He says that God existed prior to creation and that he also exists even after we return to the earth. That he brought us into the world and he'll be there as we exit the world. That he spans all generations. But what I love most, what's most pointed to me is what he does in verses 4 to 6. He says, For a thousand years are in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood and they fall asleep. And in the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew and toward evening it fades and it withers away. I love what he's doing here in verses 4 and 6. Guys, I'm completely dead on the clicker here. I don't know if it's just me or what. Um, But in verses 4 and 6, I think he's providing a sense and a perspective as to what God does in terms of time. Thanks, brother. Uh, What he does in terms of time. Uh, Many have said sometimes that God stands out of time. I don't know about for you, but for me, I'm like, that doesn't seem very helpful, right? Uh, It seems like, well, God's just distant or God's completely disconnected. I understand there's theological impact of that phrase, 
But what I think Moses is doing in verses 4 and 6 is a slight difference to that. I want you to think about the times in your life where you felt you've been under attack from people, from systems, from structures, from life itself, the elements and the threats of life. In those moments, time does not move by fast at all. In fact, I remember for me growing up, the first time, the most vivid moment that I saw my dad cry was I was probably in high school, okay? I remember coming home one night and my dad is in his bedroom and he is literally in a fetal position crying like a little baby because he's got a tiny, tiny little kidney stone, all right? And it's completely undone him. And I don't mean to be condescending to those that have had kidney stones because I know it's absolutely excruciating. But I know in the midst of that moment for my dad, one minute felt like an eternity, right? That 30 minutes, an hour felt like years of time in the midst of stress, in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty. Time seems to collapse in on itself and passes with an absolute cruciating pace. And yet, notice what Moses does here in uh, verses 4 and 6. He says that for the Lord, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday. But for us, when life collapses in on us and when there's stress and there's pressure, it seems like time doesn't move fast at all. And yet what Moses is saying for that generation is that God is a refuge unlike any other because for him, even in those moments, a thousand years are like yesterday. He doesn't stand outside of time necessarily. He comprehends it and holds it in a way It provides you a shelter in the midst of those pain and those moments that seem to pass by so slowly. That God is a refuge unlike any other. Because he existed before creation, because he exists after we return to the earth, and because he holds time in a way that we can't even fathom or experience. He provides refuge and a shelter unlike any ever shelter we could ever create, fathom, or experience. That he was a hiding place for that generation and for all generations that would come before or after. He is our refuge. I want to ask you this morning, as you think about your life and think about where you've come as you walk in this morning, I just want to ask for you, where are the places in your life right now where you go, I feel a confusion about life. That even as you wrestle with the Lord, you go, I'm not just confused about life, but I'm frustrated with life. I'm disappointed with things. I'm disappointed with the Lord. I'm angry. Sometimes I'm even feeling devastated or even depressed. One of the things I love about Psalms is the kind of freedom they give us to express and to see the reality of life. Psalm 90 is not a happy-go-lucky, warm and fuzzy psalm. (laughs) But as we unpack it, as we move forward, it will take the bubble and the air out of any bubble. (laughs) It will take you off of the high as you look at the reality and the starkness of life. But I think in it, it gives us a freedom to look at life as it really is and as we really experience it. I want to argue that in many ways that the fervency of our search for refuge is going to be marked by the honesty of our struggle. If God is our refuge and he's a refuge unlike any other shelter that we could create or experience, then really the fervency of our search for refuge in life that is a human condition is going to be marked by the honesty of our struggle in life. Even as I ask you guys this morning, where is it you feel confused, you feel frustrated, you feel angry or even devastated by life and by the Lord, there's probably something in your spirit that says, I don't know that I can say that or go there. That seems unspiritual. That seems like it's not lacking of faith to trust the Lord. And one of the things I want to submit to you guys this morning is this, that for some reason In Bible churches and in the Texas Bible Belt, the little subculture that we live in, there's something in us, there's something about our subculture that really 
uh, desires and pressures us to have it all put together for us to look like we get it, like we're all put together, that we're not struggling. I would even argue in our Bible churches that so emphasize knowledge and understanding uh, that we de-emphasize the emotional spectrum of life, of what we're really feeling at times. We don't go there. We just try to teach our way out of emotion sometimes, right? That's not life. That's not how God's created us. And one of the reasons why I love Psalms is because the Psalms scream at us for honesty. They provide space for honesty in the midst of life, in the midst of our relationship with the Lord. If the Psalms teach us anything as we walk through them, the entirety of them as we walk through them in the summer, they scream that it is okay and it is normal that even in your own relationship with the Lord that there would be confusion, frustration, devastation, depression, consternation. I love the Psalms because as you see David himself, he screams at God at times. That we see a rawness to life with the Lord in the book of Psalms that we don't see anywhere else in our scriptures. Sometimes we wonder if it's reverent or not. The way the psalmist writes and the way the psalmist highlights the way that they walk with the Lord. And one of the things I think the psalms is doing for us is that it's screaming at us. It's flying right in the face of that tendency to always have it together and to always feel like we should be happy, joyful, and always just exhilarated by life and by the Lord. Psalms say that's not always reality. And the psalms teach us that it's okay to be in that place where that's not our experience. Uh, this past month, I was, had the opportunity uh, uh, to have a life bucket dream fulfilled for me, and I got to go see you 2 in Houston. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I was stoked for about a month. I get there, and they finally walk out on stage, and I was like, this is even better than I thought it was going to be. It was awesome. And so from seeing you 2 back in May to a buddy and a friend of mine highlighted for me that even as we were jumping in the Psalms, that uh, Fuller Seminary had done a series of interviews with the lead singer of U2, Bono, about the Psalms. And I want to run one of those clips for you from Bono because what he has to say about the Psalms and this idea and this necessity of honesty is so powerful. So I want you guys to hear what he has to say here. So one sentence answers, just one sentence. That's hard for me. I am Irish. Okay. One thing that you've learned about God through your reading of the Psalms, one thing. He listens. One thing you've learned about yourself through your reading of the Psalms. I don't listen enough. What is one difficult or troubling thing the Psalms have required of you? Honesty. Okay. I did it in one word there. <laughs> that, that, where I come from, I'm saying that is minimalism. As I look through the scriptures, I just see a bunch of the dodgiest people ever collected in one place. Murderers, adulterers, egomaniacs. I mean, they sound like most of my friends. (laughs) They sound like me. And David's treatment Mm -hmm. of Bathsheba's husband, it's it's Mm mind-blowing that he had such darkness in him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he murders. Really, he gets her sent to the front line. That's right to get the husband out of the way so he can take advantage of the missus. I mean, it's, it's, it's my boy. This same character, right. through the alchemy, right. that is grace and redemption. We know God doesn't have favorites, but if he has, you think it might be David. <laughs> and you think, well, how? how? Mm. And for me, it's revealed in the Psalms of David, the honesty, mm-hmm. whether he wrote them or not. 
are sure. attributed to them, sure. they are marked by honesty. Sure. And I want to argue the case for artists or potential artists who might be listening in on our conversation and are, are not giving expression mm-hmm. to what's really going on in their life because they feel it will give the wrong impression of them. We don't have to please God in any other way, really, other than to be brutally honest. Sure. That is the root, not just to a relationship with God, Mm -hmm. but it's the root to a great song. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's the only place you can find a great Mm -hmm. song. It's the only place you can find any work of art of merit. I love what Bono has to say here. Uh, some of the things he says, and I, kinda, I might have put, put that or packaged that a little bit differently, but I love what he says by and large. There's a necessity for honesty as we walk with the Lord. And the Psalms, more than any other maybe aspect of the scriptures, highlight that, demonstrate that, call us to that. And again, in our Bible church, and our Texas Bible Belt world, that's not typically the ethos that which we talk about spirituality. That's not typically what we model It's not typically what we want to put on Facebook, nor should you necessarily. But there's a reality as we walk with the Lord that there's a freedom and there's a space for a brutal honesty as we walk with the Lord. I think what Bono has to say, of course, as he pivots and he speaks to musicians, that it's not just for musicians. It's not just that we're all creative and, in a sense, uh, artists ourselves. But as he's talking about the human experience, I think there's a necessity for honesty as we walk with the Lord. And I think Bono hits it. I think the Psalms hit it. And again, I would argue that as we think about our own lives, uh, that if we can actually be honest with where we are. I asked you earlier, I want to ask you again, as you think about your life right now, where is it you're confused? Where is it you're frustrated? Where is it you feel devastated, discouraged? Where is it? Maybe it's your business. It's just not cranking along like you thought. This isn't where you thought things would be after the investments that you've made. Maybe it's your family life. Maybe it's your marriage and it's your kids and the relationships you have with them. That Again, it's not where you thought God would have this thing. This isn't the story that you would have written and yet here you are. Maybe it's your finances and it's your possessions and it's what your summers look like. And you go, this isn't what I would have written for me. This isn't the story I wanted to write. And yet this is where God has me, has our family, has me in life. Again, I think the fervency of your search for refuge is going to be marked by the honesty of your struggle. And if you can be honest with where you are, then I think the question becomes, what do we do with that? The first is simple, is that we come honestly to the Lord in confession of our desperation. The Psalms say that there's freedom for that kind of expression. And one of the things I want to do this morning is open the thing up a little bit and say, man, come honestly to the Lord. Don't pack it away and pull it back and hide it out as if he doesn't know what you're thinking and you're feeling. Dialogue with him. Come before him openly, honestly. You can do it reverently as well to say, Lord, here's where I am. Where are you? The Psalms show that over and over again. I love this verse in Hebrews chapter 4 that speaks to that. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. It's not as if the Lord doesn't know what you're thinking or feeling. It is not as if he doesn't know you're frustrated. But pull towards him, lean in towards him, and communicate and wrestle through it with him to find mercy and help in time of need. Second thing I think I want to challenge us to do is that we would come honestly not just to the Lord, but to the community of faith. I think the Psalms model and they demonstrate very beautifully what it looks like to actually do that with the Lord. 
But again, I think in our Bible church world and in our Texas Bible Belt world, we don't so often model or see modeled what it looks like to do that winsomely in community. To process the frustrations and the discouragements and the disappointments of life in a way that is still highlighting reverence to the Lord, honesty in our struggle, and also a winsomeness that helps others learn how to walk through those things as well. And one of the things I want to do with our time this morning is I wanted you guys to hear from someone whose story is not just powerful, but I think their example for us as a body and for us as a community has really highlighted and shown and teaches us what it looks like to walk in that form and in that fashion. Some of you guys may know Abby Perry, who I want to invite up on stage with me right now. I don't know where you are, Abby. Uh, There you are, right in front of me. Uh, Some of you guys may know Abby because she is the wife of our youth pastor, Jared Perry. Uh, I'll tell you guys, if there's anything that Jared and I share, it's one, a common love of sports, and two, uh, the reality that we married way out of our league uh, and give hope to the common man. And so I wanted you guys to hear from Abby directly as to their story Some of the things the Lord's had them walk through, and the reason why I wanted you guys to hear directly from Abby too, is not just what their story is, but I feel like Abby has done an amazing job within the community at large of faith to say, here's honestly what this has been like, and here's honestly, therefore, a model of how to walk that through. And so you guys are going to be blessed. I'm really thankful and excited for you guys to get to hear from Abby as she talks about their story. Thanks for sharing. Okay, so like Trey said, some of you know our family, but for those who don't, um, my husband Jared and I and our oldest son Owen moved here in the summer of 2013, and in the early months of 2014 found out we were pregnant with our second child, and about halfway through that pregnancy found out that that he, Gabriel, would be um, born with club foot, which means that his feet were turned inward like this toward each other, and it was really just disheartening and surprising. You want those ultrasounds to be fun. It was the one where we were finding out the gender. So you're just all, you know, geeked up. And, um, but it, we were instead given a piece of news that we just never anticipated. And yet alongside that, um, everything that the doctors kept saying to us over and over and over again, and it just like played on a, uh, like a loop in my mind was, um, it's going to be harder on you, meaning Jared and I, than it is on him. And he won't remember it because by the time he's three or four, it's all going to be over. It's treatable. It's going to be dealt with by then. Well, Gabriel will be three at the end of September, and we think about it still every single day, um, and we will probably every single day ongoing because it turned out not to be um, just clubfoot, but to be a neurogenetic disorder, and clubfoot ended up being just one of the manifestations of that, and we learned this over weeks and months of... Um, trips to Houston that chipped away at what we thought we knew and that chipped away at um, the, the idea that everything was treatable and chipped away at me in a lot of ways. And so um, as those months unfolded, I fell into a mindset of just thinking that every day was, was just going to be worse and that things were, um, that we were losing control. We had lost control. That part was real. But um, that we were going to just... Um, lose grip on on what we knew that I was losing grip on what I believed, and um, I remember saying to God so many times, "You say that you're good," and I have thought that's something that I understood for a really long time. I've known Jesus since I was a really little kid, but I don't get it anymore. And if you're good, you're going to have to change my definition of good because I can't change it, and I don't. I just don't get it anymore. This isn't what I expected from you, which is a really 
hard thing to say, and there was a lot of guilt and shame that came with that. Um, and it got to the point that I uh, was diagnosed as clinically depressed and um, had to start taking medicine to give me really how I think of it now, um, and when I still take it every day, is that it gives me the leg up to express myself honestly to the Lord and to express myself honestly um, to the community of faith, like Trey was saying, and to um, to say to God, I believe, help my unbelief with like bold all caps on the help my unbelief <laughs> and um, to sit with friends and to ramble on for a really long time about how I don't know who God is anymore and I want to believe in him but I, I don't get it this isn't what I wanted for my child it's not what I expected why isn't he intervening and not to have those friends um, point me toward positivity or toward guilt about what I was feeling but to remind me that that I even care about continuing to walk with God in this is probably a sign of God's goodness um, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so I've found through expressing myself directly to God um, within my marriage, within friendships, and then also, this happens to be for me, um, through writing, that people... um, you know, that I'm not the only one feeling this way. And that, um, which is of course what ends up being the case about most of our feelings. We think we're alone in them and we're not. And that, um, other people, what it may not be something with their child, but, um, are experiencing things that are making them question who God is and making them, um, unsure of what they've always believed or want to believe. And, um, by myself and with those friends and even with people I've connected with through writing, I've realized that what it means for God to be my refuge and what it means for him to expand my categories of him being good is that he can bear the weight of my grief and that he can bear the weight of my lament and he may not change the circumstance, but he can both um, bear the weight of the circumstance and bear the weight of my pain and my expression of that pain within it. So... um, I don't wake up every morning thinking like, God's so good and this is super fun. I I don't think that when I am um, fixing Gabriel's braces for the fourth time in a day, I don't think that when he's having to miss the preschool that he loves so that we can go to another doctor's appointment, I don't think that when he's five months old and doing horrible nerve conduction studies to find out that he doesn't have function in his feet or toes. But what I do think is God can bear the weight of my pouring out about this and he... um, and he cares more for my child than I do. And he cares for um, the story that he's telling in and through our family. And by his grace, he cares to use that to point other people to his goodness as well. And part of that has been through letting people see that um, God can, can bear the weight of our grief. So I encourage you to do the same. Awesome. Thanks, Abby. Again, I love the way that Abby put it as we think about coming honestly to the Lord, that he can bear the weight of our grief, that he can bear the weight of our lament, that he's big enough and mighty enough to handle the honesty that we might bring him. And that's what the Psalms scream at us. I think that's what Abby so beautifully portrays for us, that this is what it looks like to actually walk through these kinds of things. One of the things I've loved about Abby and Jared as they walk through those is two things, and that's what we're talking about right here. One is they've leaned in towards the Lord in those moments and second of all, they've leaned in towards the community in those moments. I think when you're walking through those kinds of things, maybe it's not things with your family or your kids, but maybe it's things, that, again, with your business or your life or whatever, to feel like no one else can understand, no one else can get it, and I can guarantee you that's a part of what the enemy is doing to distance you and separate you out from the community. 
And I promise you, as you walk through some difficult things and as you bring them to the community of faith, I can promise you right now, the community will not know how to respond and they will say things that are weird and hurtful at times, okay? And that's where we're all learning together. And yet, what I want to encourage you in the midst of those moments is to continue to press through and continue to lean into the community even as they try to figure out how to walk alongside of you because you need the community in those moments. And Psalms give us that freedom to go, it's okay to walk this way. It's okay to have this kind of experience. In fact, it's not just okay, but it's absolutely necessary to walk well with the Lord in that kind of honesty. What I love of what the psalmist does for us and Moses does here as the passage ends, he's going to show us really not just the beauty of God's eternality, that it's the basis of the fact that he is a better refuge than any other one we could find, but he's going to show us at the end of the passage how his eternality instructs us in our response in that search for refuge. What are we to do? How do we respond as we really get it? Uh, notice verse 12. Notice where the psalmist or where Moses goes for us as he highlights, in a sense, God's eternality and our response. First thing he's going to do here for us is he's going to say that we must count our days. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I think there's two different ways of counting our days in the midst of those kinds of moments. Again, one is in the midst of those moments, it seems like time passes by excruciatingly slow. What Paul will say in Romans is that our afflictions are momentary. They're fleeting compared to the perspective in which we look at God's view on time. That our life is actually quite brief. So even in the most excruciatingly slow moments that there's a, mo- there's a sense in which as we look at the grander story of what God is doing that actually time is going to pass by fast. Psalm 39 says it like this. And it went dead on me again. All right. <laughs> Psalm 39 says this. Uh, as we think about time, it says, Make me to know my end, the extent of my days, and how transient I am. In verse uh, 10, notice how Moses puts it. The end of verse 10, he says, For soon our days and our work is gone and we fly away. That there's a brevity to life and it's just gone. One of my favorite quotes comes from uh, a person named Harvey McKay who says this about time. Time is free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. And you can't keep it, but you can spend it. And once you've lost it, you can never get it back. When we begin to get the right perspective on time, even in the midst of difficulty and struggle, there's a sense in which we begin to realize, man, our lives are but a brief vapor. And there's a grander story that God is working in and through our difficulty, in and through our story, that maybe isn't being written the way we were written it, but God is doing something grand. And as you think about your summer so far, for me, it's interesting. We're, we're about literally a month into this thing. But if you think about August, so we get back to back to school mode and the semester start cranking up. We're really almost halfway through the relaxed part of summer when you thought you were going to have all this time and yet we're almost halfway through it. And I want to just ask, even as you look at your summer this week right now, how are you counting your days? Where's your time going? Some of us are better or worse at actually budgeting our money but a very few of us are really that great at budgeting our time. Do you know where your time is going? Moses will say wisdom is numbering our days, having an awareness and accounting of our time and how we use it as a resource. But then he pivots and he says, it's not just that we're to count our days, but we're to make our days count. Notice how he ends. He kind of pulls up out of the nosedive a little bit and brings some air back in the room. And notice how he ends at verse 13 or verse 14. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days that you have afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. Man, 
There's a realism about Psalm 90 that is not great for Hallmark cards, right? That's why I like Psalm 90. There's a realism, there's an honesty about our human experience with the Lord as we walk life out. And yet in the midst of that reality, in the midst of that honesty, notice the possibility though. That as we come to the Lord, as we lean into the Lord, there's a possibility that we can still arise with joy and with gladness in the morning. And one of the elements I want to challenge us as we think about how we make our days count is that there's still an opportunity to find worship in the midst of difficulty. That even in the midst of those moments, as we come, as we lean in, there's actually a greater depth of our worship as it is attached to an honesty of our relationship with him. To worship one that you cannot be honest with is actually quite a superficial worship experience. But to come into worship and to say, honestly, here's where I'm confused, here's where I'm frustrated, here's where I'm disappointed, and yet I'm still going to honor and proclaim your goodness, although you might have to continue to redefine it for me, is a depth of worship and a depth of a relationship that we so often never even get to. Moses will say, experience the joy of worship. And then notice where he ends us in verses 16 and 17. He says, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Much of the disappointment, much of the heartache, much of the frustration we feel and the confusion we feel is where we've invested our lives and our responsibilities and yet the story doesn't get written the way that we thought it should. Whether that's at work or in school or in our home life. We've invested ourselves in a sense in work. We've been investing our energies in something and it's not growing. It's not building. It's not unfolding the way that we thought. And so I love the way that Moses ends as he kind of pulls it up to say, Lord, show us your work. Let us see what we can't see right now and confirm the work of our hands. Establish it, strengthen it when it seems like it fails. That a day is coming when it will ultimately be established and strengthened in a way that we could never have dreamed or imagined. Psalm 91 will be a happy-go-lucky psalm. (laughs) Maybe that's where you need to go this afternoon. Psalm 90 is an honest realism as to the difficulty of life that I think screams at us for the fact that it's okay to be honest with the Lord and to say, here's where I am. I know for us here at Southwood, one of our hopes for the community of faith here at Southwood is that we would be marked by an honesty not just together, but by an honesty in the way that we communicate and the way that we do life and the way that we share. For some of you, uh, you hear Abby's story and you go, I'm trying to process those things myself. I'm going to speak to the guys for a second and go, I know you hear Abby and you go, maybe I'm not a mom and a wife. Um, and I hear Bono and I'm clearly not an artist. I don't get that, right? But I'm going to speak to us guys and say, for us men, we are especially poor at this. We're especially poor at an honesty and an admission of our desperation. Whether it's with our spouses, our friends, or our community at large. We want to seem like we have it together, that we're self-sufficient. And one of my prayers and one of my hopes for us as a community of faith is that we would move past that. And that we would come honestly not just to the Lord, but we'd come honestly to the community of faith to go, here's where I'm struggling in my work and my marriage That we would come with an honesty of admission to go, I'm desperate and life is not unfolding the way I thought it would and I don't know how to get out of this nosedive. That we'd move toward community, that we'd move toward the Lord with absolute honesty. And so honestly for you this morning, that man just need to be with the Lord. I encourage you that you'd find some time this afternoon and you'd pull away if there's some things that you go, hey, I really honestly need to process this more with the Lord. I want to encourage you to find a quiet spot this afternoon and do that today. Maybe even this morning before lunch.
for some of you, it may be, hey, you got something that you really uh, honestly need to process with a community at large. If you want to talk to someone this morning, I'll be up here afterwards. Or maybe you just need to pull near a friend or toward a Bible study leader or someone that you trust and you go, hey, man, I, I need to process this and I need to get this out on the table. Because in silence and in isolation, it is eating me alive. And I need the community of faith not just to move me toward positivity, as Abby said, but I need the community of faith to hear me, to validate and to help me understand what I'm walking through and to give me a safe place to process that and to turn it over and to marinate with it. That as a community of faith, that's what we want our church to be. That's what we want Southwood to be. That we would have that kind of ethos, that kind of honesty, that kind of realism so that as the world watches in, they see something that looks profoundly different from what they think of Christianity to be. A sturdiness of faith, a depth of resolve, a depth of dependence on the Lord. That's our heart for who we are and the kind of community that we'd experience. If you feel like you really don't have community at all, if you feel like you don't really have a person to go to, but hey, let us help you with that this summer. We would love to help you find a community, a home group, or somewhere to be involved with, to be plugged in. That's part of what we delight to do. We want to do that this morning for you guys. So wherever you are, those are a couple ideas. Move towards the Lord, move towards community, process with honesty, because God is a refuge that's unlike any other. Psalm 90 is a psalm of trust. A encouraging reminder that in the midst of the difficulty of life, God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our refuge as a hiding place for our soul. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we come before you this morning, and this morning is a little bit different, and this passage is a little bit different than the kinds of ones we often walk through. And yet I thank you for what Psalms show us, that there is a freedom of honesty in our walk with you and in our relationship with you to process the frustrations, the disappointments, the confusions that we feel that we're walking through. And Father, for some of us, there may be some things that are packed away that we've not unpacked for a long time. And that maybe this afternoon, we need to do that with you. To say, Lord, it's not that you don't know, but we've not really processed through this and talked through this together. And Lord, I need to bring it to you and I need to process this afternoon today with you about it. Father, give us the courage and the resolve to do that. For some of us, Maybe we have an honesty in our interaction and our relationship with you, but uh, we really look at the community at large and go, there's no one I trust, and there's no one that would even understand what I'm experiencing because it's so different and it's so unique. And yet, Lord, that is part of how the enemy separates us and isolates us and lies to us. That No, there are people that are walking through the same kinds of things we're walking through. There are people that are getting and have been through what we've walked through already. In fact, they may be five years down the road and they may be a wonderful source of wisdom to not just totally get it where we are, but to help actually guide and maybe even lead us out of it as there are just a few miles down the road. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to be a community that would radiate that kind of honesty, not just with one another, but even to our city and to our world. That presents a view of Christianity that's not... Uh, for Hallmark cards and it's just all warm and fuzzy, but presents a realism of faith and honesty of our walks with you that winsomely would provide a picture of a resolve, of a commitment and of a dependency that uh, they're searching for refuge for and they would find a refuge in you that is unlike any other. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit we pray. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday. If you want to talk to someone, come up, grab us. We would love to help you guys find community as well. We love you guys. We'll see you guys next Sunday.